Welcome back to Social Distance Close-Ups Israel Edition podcast series. I'm your host, Rich Alexander, and today I'm joined by Dennis Ross, the director for the American Center for Political Leadership at the Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Happy to have you. For those listening to the podcast, the American Center for Political Leadership, ACPL's mission is to promote a national movement of civic engagement through civil discourse. Before becoming director of the ACPL, Dennis Roth served both as a Florida state representative and as a United States congressman for four terms. During his time in Congress, he served not only in the Financial Services Committee, but also on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Education Workforce Committee. I chose to interview Dennis since I was so fascinated by his wide range of political experiences and leadership roles and wanted to hear more about them face to face. So hi, Dennis. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It really is. Yay. Great. So to get started, the first thing I'm really curious about is if you could tell me a brief story on how you got to where you are in this very interesting political journey, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. For whatever reason, my family was never political. I mean, they've, they've never been that way. In fact, my mom was a lifelong Democrat, my father a lifelong Republican, but I've always had a penchant for the political world. My first official campaign was running this girls' claim class president campaign for it's a sophomore in 10th grade, and we were successful in one, and she still wouldn't go out with me. But uh, eight years later, she did, and, and we got married. But we've been together as a kind of a passion. We believe in public service and, and, and whether it be through elected office or just community involvement. The one unique thing about the United States is it is a true self-government, but it is not practiced that way. And when you look at how many people don't vote, don't get involved, it kind of gives an explanation as to why we have so much turmoil at times, because we just, we're forgetting that we all have a role in the success of our country. I was active in student government growing up. Uh, I was active in political campaigns, served in the Florida legislature, served in the United States Congress, and now want to do this at the ACPL where we can engage the next generation to not only be involved, but also teach them how to have that very controversial conversation in a very civil, but yet passionate fashion. That's amazing. I'm sure you know from your politics of how, how important that is, but it's definitely something that I, I don't think I've been in enough environments where there's, it's been a fostering community of intense conversation, but in, through civil discourse. So how how do you execute that? First of all, it's not just something that happens overnight. It's kind of like exercise or weight loss. You have to practice it every day. And the one thing you have to keep in mind is that regardless of how passionate you are about an idea or an opinion, the odds of you changing your opponent's mind is about as good as them changing your mind. But what you have to remember that whomever may be your adversary today may need to be your ally tomorrow. And therefore you don't alienate that relationship. And, and you know, Rachel, the one thing that, that we don't recognize nor that we focus on as much as we should is how much we have in common. And if we were to, to, to land on a foundation of common ground, we would find that we would build relationships, friendships. Oh, we're always going to have differences. I mean, that's the beauty of who we are because we're all individuals, unique in our own ways. But you have to have the platform, the infrastructure, the process by which you can vet these differences, come to resolution and move on to the next one. We're not teaching that. We're not practicing that. And yet that is how this country was able to Imagine being in 1787 in Philadelphia, in the summer in Philadelphia, hot, sweaty, and arguing with all your colleagues that you probably don't care for anyway over how you're going to develop and create a country. It was protracted. It was rebellious. It was a difficult time, but yet they were able to reach compromise and create probably one of the best documents known to mankind when it comes to forming a government. 
I'm sure they had to. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. It's interesting when you think of think of it that way and think of how how little it's practiced now yeah. in terms of how important it is to the history of this country. Well, and social media has interfered with that too. I mean, social mm -hmm. media has been a two-edged sword. It's allowed us to, be, to broaden our horizons, to get more involved, to meet new people, but it's also given us a shield to hide behind. Instead of creating a relationship, you're creating almost a controversial engagement, if you will, by just stating your opinion and moving on. Personal relationships are very important. We can't lose sight of the fact that all of us have so much in common. As citizens of the United States, whether you're left, right, middle, you all want this country to do well. You want this next generation to do well. It's how you accomplish that, that we have our differences, but yet we can work through those. That's the beauty of how we got to where we are today, is that we've been able to work through them. And we will. We will continue to do so. Going off of that, I'm really interested in where you think social media will go in the future in terms of, like, what impact do you think it will continue to have? Do we think we'll hit a plateau and then maybe, maybe I'm being hopeful that? <laughs> it's interesting, Rachel, because right now you don't really have government involvement in social media. There is some tangential involvement. There's some pressure being put on Facebook and Google and Twitter to try to police their media and the credibility of that which is posted. You get government involved in the administration of social media, and especially if you use it as a basis by which you would gain revenues through a tax or a fee, I'm not so sure that's a good idea for one, but two, it could easily go that way where government decides that they're going to regulate free speech, they're gonna regulate everything on the internet. There are some third world countries that regulate the internet, period. Yeah. I mean, Korea doesn't even allow it, North Korea. But that's where I see social media, because it, if it continues to be like the Wild West, that may be where it goes. I'm not saying that's good, but it's also something that we talk about and that's practicing personal responsibility. If we could do that in social media, if we could do it in regular life, it would be wonderful, but let alone try it in social media. It's so great that that's something you're thinking about, as I think definitely, especially for my generation, yes. I think we're very aware of it, but it's just so subconscious at this point. Like, oh, social media is bad, and then we don't, we almost like internalize it and, and don't bring it into discussion where it definitely needs to be. Well, thank goodness we have it, because imagine what learning and communication would be like during this pandemic without it. Right. Technology has been our friend through this. Another, another thing I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you speak is what challenges or obstacles you face in this journey or teaching moments that you came across, whether that was during your time in Congress or in being director of the ACPO. It probably goes back to my passion for wanting to get involved in politics at an early age. And then when I ran for office for the state Senate in 1996 and pretty much relegated the administration of my campaign to consultants and to those that were from out of town. And I lost that race. And it was embarrassing because we went negative on a campaign. And the teaching moment for me was don't change who you are if you're going to get into the political arena. Because mm -hmm. when it's all said and done and everybody goes home after the election, you still have to live in your community. And you, so you still have to justify your actions. And fortunately, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, but the guy that beat me, who has become a very good friend of mine to this day, that was a teaching moment for me in the political arena. And I would only suggest that it does a lot of good to those that are in elected office if you've lost an office. If you've lost an election, it's a sense of humility. It's a sense of, of self-reflection and self-identification as to who you are and why you're doing it. Is it hard to stay strong with who you are in those situations? Oh, absolutely. And Rachel, that's the one thing about it. It's, first of all, you've got to have some sense of why you're doing it. And you have to be anchored to something other than this process. In other words, in my case, it's faith. It's family. These are things that, that keep you humble. Make sure you take out the trash and mow the lawn. And we're not going to call you what you think you are. You're, you're just who you are. And so keeping those things that keep you anchored, and that's been very helpful. 
I be angry to something other than this process. I think that's a that's a beautiful way to to phrase yes. it. Yes, politics okay. should be what you do. It should not be who you are. I've been doing some social justice, political internships yeah. this summer, and that's been a concept that's increasingly, it's like the first time I think that adults have been like asking me why I'm doing this work. It's been very interesting because I've been having to reflect and like anchor myself to something other than the politics, which I am realizing how important that is. I appreciate that. I'm also interested in speaking of values and things to be anchored to, what core values have guided your life in the decisions that you've made? The Probably the strongest has been you don't forget who sent you there, which means that you stay focused on your family. Again, my family, when I was growing up, was not political, but we were very strong. When my wife, Cindy, and I had kids, we included them in everything. It was, I mean, even political stuff, whether it be a campaign or a conference or whatever, we included them. And I think you have to make sure you do that. And again, the faith has been probably the foremost because I th that keeps you focused. We all have our principles, whether we're liberal or conservative or moderate. But foundationally, it's your core values that, that really are your makeup as to who you are and what you believe and keep those in front of you and they'll keep you motivated. As someone else of faith, had those faith-based values stayed the same your whole life or is that something that's developed? It's developed. It's an ongoing evolutionary process and it's been fascinating. Uh, and especially as, as I, when I'm being in Congress and, and becoming very close to some friends in Israel and, and experiencing joint faith discussion, it becomes somewhat motivating and develops even more. And I enjoy those relationships too. So interesting and important in my life and for those that also. Oh yeah. In fact, at Southeastern University, I was able to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with Ariel University. And we're hoping to, we were doing just fine until COVID hit, but do exchange programs with both students and faculty between Southeastern and Ariel in, in Israel. It's a great relationship. It really is. That's amazing. Speaking of COVID, I'm interested in what new challenges or opportunities the, the pandemic has presented for the ACPL and the work you're doing. One of the things we've identified is at the outset of the COVID, everybody was saying, what's government going to do? We want mask mandates. We want this. We want that. When in fact, what you were seeing was a sense of community come about to do things like take care of their neighbors, like take care of the elderly, like help people that were out of work. We saw a form of civic engagement that wasn't mandated, but that was done out of respect and courtesy for each other, which is a thread that runs very strong in the American culture. And with the challenge that I've seen has been, we've got to overcome what is government going to do for me and what can I do for others should be the better challenge and mantra that we should accept. Because government, let's, let's face it, they can't do everything and, and they shouldn't have to do everything. And exercising personal responsibility. If you're sick, don't go out. If you've been exposed, don't go out. So our biggest challenge is going to be how we react with more government or less government. But what we really need is more civic engagement because of the motivation behind it is better and genuine and will be longer lasting than having a government mandate tell you you must or can't do this. That's ringing true and it's echoing from, at least in my mind, the, the JFK quote. Oh yeah, that. oh yeah, he was right, he was right. And, and that's what has built our country up. It's like, it's not about what government can do for me, it's about what you can do for your right. country. Right. I also appreciate that perspective on the pandemic as well and looking at locally how much strength there has been within communities. Yeah. And definitely think that's something that's also been overlooked in terms of in some form progress that's been made. I'm also interested in 
one advice that you received that's been really impactful, whether maybe it is a JFK quote or... (laughs) Well, no, it's interesting because a large portion of my career has been in the political arena. And when I was in college, I was interning for a lobbyist and he told me something that is true in the political arena and it actually is true in just about everything. And it's not what you know, it's not who you know, it's what you know about who that makes all the difference. And I've seen people that are very smart, that do very well in tests, that don't go very far because they don't know anybody or they don't know anything about the people. And I think it does matter what you know, it does matter who you know, but what you know about them matters a lot and can help you, especially if you're able to help them. I mean, it's all, again, it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. That's another thing that's been echoed in the work I've been doing this summer in, in politics and justice areas. It's, yeah. I've been doing a lot of one-on-ones and informational interviews for like the first time, and it's wild how important uh, relationships uh. are becoming. And it, uh, for this last question, to take a turn in terms of talking about Israel a little bit, yeah. I'm interested in what, what your advice would be to a college student or young professional that wants to move to Israel, and, and what would you tell them? Do it. I will tell you, I have been very impressed in my visits to Israel and the relationships that I've developed over the years there and my readings and studying of Israel. There is no greater uh, civilization of endurance than the Israelis and the Jewish faith. When Levi Eshkol was prime minister in 67 at the commencement of the 67 war, and even David Ben-Gurion tried to come and talk to him and get him, talk him out of being there. and And he ordered the preemptive strike that just absolutely put them on the map militarily and geographically and change the way things are. And then the world recognized Israel as a viable. And that, of course, they've still gone back to too. But and then you read the book about the startup nation and you see how much the government has been able to assist private sector capital and innovation to create incredible inventions, and especially in technology. And if it were not for Israel, there would be no Middle East because the Israel in culture, the Israeli economy is the driving force behind all the economies in the Middle East. What you see happening with the UAE, you're going to see happening with all the Gulf Arab states because they realize they not only need the economic support from Israel, but they also need the military support because of the threat of Iran. And and one thing I've noticed, and this is a common thread that has always been out throughout the Jewish culture, is that they are very strong about peace. They just want peace. And if you go there and you see that and you see the Arabs, the Palestinians that, that, that aren't in the government, but that are in the civilization working alongside them, they're on the Knesset, they're on the Supreme Court. You know, this is a very inclusive country. And the one thing I really enjoy is the obligation to be in the IDF at some shape or form, because it creates a very strong sense of patriotism, and a sense of country that helps you, you take ownership of your citizenship. And so for those that, and I had a chance to visit some lone soldiers, lone wolves over there. I spent some time with a battalion and a tank battalion in the northern border near Syria, by the Golan Heights, and to see the passion of these young people for Israel and for the freedom, and you see it from a diverse culture. If I were a young person that was considering going to Israel, I would want to do it. I heartily encourage others to do it as well. One, it's safe. Two, it's incredibly educational. And three, if you're looking for motivation in your life, you'll find it in Israel. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate what, everything you're saying, especially the culture in Israel and the focus on of the people wanting peace. I definitely think that also rings true. And I've done some, some work in circles on campuses and trying to make peace oh, yeah. happen as soon as possible. And it, there's a lot less disagreement than I, I think there. You think I agree. And similar how you're talking earlier about like focusing on similarities. I definitely think that applies to Israel in many ways too. Yes. Well, thank you. That was the last question. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with Career Up Now Social Distance Podcast. 
I really appreciate how, how value-based you are. And definitely think you're the quote you had on be anchored to something other than I wrote down, other than this process <laughs> is super important. And I also appreciate how if you're focused on community engagement and I mean, how can we even begin to start like nationally or statewide if we can't start local? And I absolutely. I really appreciate that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. I enjoyed that. Awesome. Well, have a great day and I wish you the best in the future. You got it, Rachel. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.